Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Hey, well, thanks for coming out this morning, everybody. It was looking a little uh, bleak, the fact that it's two days after Christmas and it's 70 degrees and sunny. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't very hopeful for much of an outcome for people showing up. And plus, being from uh, the kind of community we're from, most people are not originally from here and tend to travel elsewhere for Christmas. But um, a surprisingly great crowd this morning. Um, I think I know most of you, but my name is Doug, and I'm with the pit crew uh, for those of you that don't know, and the Pit Crew is a preachers and training group that Tim, our pastor, is working on raising up so that he can do things like today he is visiting his son in Charleston and having Christmas down there with them, and we are filling in for him so he can have a break after a very busy holiday season that he's had, and we are uh, excited about the opportunities that we have. Um, yesterday at our house, we had a... Um, it, it got exciting right before dark a little bit, a little excitement with the children. So there's a young boy named Jeffy. Jeffy's kind of tall for his age. He just turned five, but he looks to be about six. And Jeffy and his little sister are new to the neighborhood, but they came over to play with our children and the two kids across the street. And they play together all the time, all the time. So Jeffy and his little sister, Emma, come over to play. And Jeffy is a little... Uh, rough around the edges. And so I'm sitting by the back door, and I'm on the receiving end of all these, hey, Jeffy, Jeffy did this. Hey, Jeffy did that. Hey, Jeffy threw the ball over the fence. And so I go out back, and I say, okay, Jeffy, let's keep the balls inside the fence. We have a pond right behind our fence, and so we like to keep the kids in the fence, and we don't have running around grabbing things. And so one of these times, uh, somebody comes running up, two people come running up, two children, Jeffy threw the soccer ball and hit Gracie in the face. Oh, no. Gracie is about, she's a little tiny thing, and she's our friend from across the street. And sure enough, I walked out the door, and Gracie's tough as nails, but Gracie's crying. That doesn't happen very often. I'm like, oh, Lord, what am I going to do with this? So I go pick Gracie up, and I check on her and make sure Gracie's okay. Then I'm trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do with Jeffy? Thank the Lord, Sarah comes out. She always knows what to do in these situations with the kids, and she's coming to rescue us. So she says to Jeffy, okay, Jeffy, if, you can't, if you're going to be too rough with the girls, you're going to have to go home. And it's getting late anyway. It was. It was getting dark. Um, so maybe it's time to go home. And then as she walks Jeffy over to, to go across the street, she kind of is halfway there, and she comes back to the other kids, and she says, you know what? Jeffy doesn't play with anybody. Jeffy's still very young in comparison to you guys. And when you guys were little, you had older children that helped you learn how to play with one another in, a, in an acceptable and proper way. So Jeffy has only really played by himself. He doesn't go to preschool or anything like that. So he's only played on his own, on his own and his social skills are a little off. And so she's explaining this to the children, and they're, and they're oh, okay, and they're kind of get, getting that. And so then Sarah invites him back over to apologize to Gracie. 
And so Jeffy has just entered a new process in his life. Jeffy has just started the process of developing his social skills. And I'm sure that Jeffy and Emma will be an integral part of the neighborhood gang now as they move forward in life. And see, we have a a saying. I work for a ministry called Shiloh Place Ministries, and we deal with a lot of life issues. And we have a saying, a phrase, stay in the process, as long as you're staying in the process. And today, normally, we work on messages, and we work on the messages together. We come up with the fill-ins and the important points, and then we build our own messages around them. And so you're getting the same points. But Tim just let us loose. He said, you know what? Just preach what's on your hearts. So today, you're going to have three completely different messages. Um, And this staying in the process thing is something that was on my heart. And I've discovered that it wasn't that easy to talk about staying in the process in the time that we have this morning. So there's a part of praying and staying in the process that um, the Lord has kind of revealed to me about my own walk. And the process is important because, you see, the Apostle Peter started out uh, as a very rash person, cutting off ears with swords, speaking out of turn, denying Jesus. But then on the day of Pentecost, he speaks and 3,000 people come to Jesus because he was in his process The Apostle Paul started out as an angry person persecuting and killing Christians, but when he met Jesus, he entered a new process, and he became a person of joy, planted churches, was a missionary, and wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. And here's uh, our scripture that we're going to base things off today. This 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 16 through 18 says this. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So you see, we are being transformed. Once we reach that point and it becomes unveiled, we know the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit is a part of us. And he begins to transform us as we start this walk and we move from glory to glory. Let's pray real quick and then we'll jump into what else we have. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the faithful that have come out here uh, this morning. And I pray that you administer uh, to their hearts the words that they need to receive. And I pray that not a single one of us would leave this building the same way we came, but we would be changed to a deeper place of glory. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> for the past few years, I've chosen a word, a word for my year. It was, it was just sort of a, something I did just to try it and see what would happen. And, it, and I noticed that it actually did have an effect. Even when I wasn't focused on the word as much as I should have necessarily, when I looked back, I said, yeah, that word had an impact on my life. So this year, I was praying about what that word would be, and the Lord directed me to happiness, happiness, which is something I think the church needs more of, the church at large, not necessarily Seacoast Vineyard. I actually think we do fairly well on it, but the church at large could use a little bit of happiness because we seem to operate in a lot of fear and pessimism when it, becomes, when it comes to the world around us. And uh, so in my journey from glory to glory, I want to be happy through my journey. And this time of year, we're making resolutions, we're setting goals, and any of the best goal-setting plans will tell you that there's a catalyst goal 
the catalyst goal, if you have 10 goals and you have one catalyst goal, the catalyst goal becomes the most important because if you can, if you can achieve that goal, then it will cause all of the other goals to fall into place much quicker. And so you have a catalyst goal. So my catalyst goal for the year is to develop happiness. And I come to find out it's a practice and it's a skill that can be acquired. So that is my, my chief goal this year. And I'd like to invite you in to that process. This is something I've just started, but happiness, joy, and optimism seem to be interlinked. Researchers, when they talk about it, talk about the three, and they use them interchangeably. And here's something the Bible says about happiness and about joy that I think is crucial for us. And it's short, and it's simple, and it's sweet. Proverbs 17, 22 says, a joyful heart is good like medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. If you've heard me speak before, you know anything about me, you know that we had a couple of really rough years. My wife got uh, pregnant, immediately started getting sick, um, all kinds of things, almost lost the baby a a number of times, had her gallbladder removed, had a miracle, the baby was born full term, healthy. Uh, Then we, we spent months sleeping upright in a recliner because he had such terrible reflux. And then my wife got terribly sick again, and we went to the hospital. Uh, She had another surgery, and then medical bills ensued. Well, that process left me crushed in spirit. And at this point in my life, I, I think had I had a practice of happiness and a purpose and a focus on happiness, that that time of my life would have been far easier than it was because I was basing happiness on a place to get to on a, uh, and aligning it with something else. But the good news is, is we can keep ourselves full of good medicine and full of joy, and that can overflow into the world around us. Because people are drawn to happiness. People are drawn to it. That's scientifically proven, as a matter of fact. And the thing about us is, man, when we're full of judgment and bitterness, that, people are not really drawn to us. And our mission is to draw people unto Jesus. And they're really, they're drawing to Jesus from us. So judgment is not the medicine that the world is looking for. But happiness can be a medicine that draws them. So the thing is, is when we start talking about happiness and joy and that kind of thing, we need, really need to know what it is. Like, so what exactly does that mean? And when I started researching all this, uh, when this word came to me, I recalled a TED Talk that I'd seen by a guy named Sean Acor. He wrote a book called The Happiness Advantage. So I went back and I found him and watched his TED Talk and some other interviews with him. And Sean did happiness research at Harvard for 12 years. He's, been re- he's researched in 50 country, over 50 countries, and he's worked with one-third of the Fortune 100 companies concerning happiness and optimism. And the guy knows his stuff. And here's what he says Uh, about happiness. He says, in our culture today, we tend to define happiness as pleasure. However, the ancient Greeks, and now cognitive scientists also, define it as the joy we feel in moving toward our potential. The joy we feel in moving toward our potential. And this is great news for us. In my transformation, in my process, I can be happy even when it's not so pleasurable. Because you see, sometimes in that transformation process when God is grinding away the rough edges that we tend to have that we come in with, it's not very pleasurable, but at least we can be happy even though we aren't experiencing pleasure. See, pleasure is what you feel when you're eating your favorite Ben and Jerry's ice cream. 
When I'm eating Chunky Monkey, I feel amazing. The problem with that is, is that in order to keep feeling amazing, I need to keep eating more ice cream. And that is an inconsistent and extremely unhealthy pursuit. So you can't keep eating the ice cream to feel good. The difference is happiness and joy are something you can have, even an experience that you have, even when life is unpleasurable. For example, childbirth. And this is just what I hear. Don't tell my wife that I spoke as an authority on childbirth because she will remind me I know absolutely nothing about childbirth. She's good at reminding me about that. But as I understand it, childbirth is extremely low on the pleasure scale. Very low on the pleasure scale. But on the joy scale, it's through the roof. That's why people have more than one child, because that other part is forgotten. The joy of having the child far overrides the displeasure felt in the process. Otherwise, probably once and done, you'd be out. But there are other benefits to, to happiness and there's reasons for, for uh, cultivating it. Uh, ACOR's research shows this about happy people. 31% uh, of, of happy people, happy people are 31% more productive. They are 37%, they have 37% better sales figures. They have better, more secure jobs. They are better at keeping their jobs. They are more resilient, meaning they bounce back from bad situations much quicker They have less burnout. They are more likely to get a promotion within two years of joining a company. Positive people are perceived as being more attractive by the opposite sex. Now, that would go over really well in the 1130 service, but most of us here are married. But the college group would would find that very interesting and very helpful to their future. But happy people also tend to live longer, which I find very encouraging as a 45-year-old man who has an 18-month-old Son, I plan on living much longer, and this is my catalyst goal to that, is obtaining happiness. And so I can see where a happy Christian might be much more effective at touching the lives of other people as well. So how do we get purposeful about getting happiness? How do we do that? Well, there's a couple of ways. There's a couple of things that we need to look at, uh, uh, patterns we might need to look at, and then there's a couple of practices we can look at. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So do not be conformed to this world. And there's a couple of two patterns in, no, specifically I found that we conform to this world that we might want to leave behind. And the first one of those is leave fear-driven media behind. Seth Godin, uh, you may have heard of him. He's a, he's a very famous author in the area of marketing and business. He says this, the media makes money. They make a profit by making us afraid. That's their purposes. That's how they stay in business. And this is a marketing genius who realizes this, and he's saying that. Sean Acor, in studies, discovered that just three minutes of negative news before 10 a.m. shows a more negative outlook on the day, even six to eight hours later. That's just three minutes of that influence in your morning. And you say, how am I supposed to stay up with what's going on in the world? 
well, wait till after 10 a.m., number one, and then maybe don't get news from talking heads who, whose sole job it is to steer, stir up strife and fear and stay away from that. And that's both sides of the aisle. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not promoting one or the other. It's both sides of the aisle. They're there. You can find them. And Sarah has a great practice for, for not allowing this um, the media to affect her. See, Sarah, my wife, for those of you who don't, don't know, she, she at one time was on medication for depression. And so she got off of that medication, and she's very aware of what comes in and how it affects her. So Sarah, sometimes, she'll, she'll sit in the bed, and she'll open up her computer, and she'll watch these videos of puppies being rescued and servicemen coming home to surprise their kids. And she has this wonderful cry at at all the joy and good that's in the world. And she sleeps peacefully and happy. And it's good for her. I have a similar practice. I occasionally, I'll watch videos in the bed at night. And I watch videos of people injuring themselves, doing some of the stupidest things you can imagine And I cry because I'm laughing so hard. And I feel so much better about myself after watching these videos. And my optimism goes through the roof. And I feel wonderful. And I go to bed thinking, man, I am a winner. Compared to most people in the world, I am winning at life. And it works for me. The second thing that we probably need to think about is how our relationship to success and happiness and not confusing the two of them. You see, so often, in America in particular, success becomes a predictor of happiness. We make these subtle decisions that we'll be happy when. When we get a certain job, when we get married, when we make a certain amount of money, all those things are fine But when you put happiness on the other side of success, it's always a moving target. And you never actually experience happiness. You might experience momentary pleasure, much like pleasure is tied to the ice cream. It's momentary. So when we get the relationship right, then we can be happy through the whole thing. Scientists have figured out if they know everything about your external world, your goals, your accomplishments, your finances... Uh, your job position, that they can only predict about 10% of your long-term happiness. So 90% of our long-term happiness is based upon how our brain is processing the world around us, how we think about our money, how we think about our goals, how we think about our family, and how we think about our positions. Success is great, but let's don't confuse it with happiness We're putting the cart before the horse, and we need to get those things in right order and be happy no matter what our successes are. Sean Acor interviewed uh, Oprah, as a matter of fact, not long ago, and discovered that she said when she was at the very height of her career, and you can imagine how high the height of Oprah's career is, right? That she was the most depressed. So success had nothing to do with happiness very backwards, and she actually worked on that. And if you want to figure out where you are on the happiness scale, there's a few good online quizzes I found. Um, I'm not giving you a a URL because it was ridiculously long, but if you Google pursuit of happiness, happiness quiz, 
I think you'll find the quiz that I did. And I rated actually pretty well, but I was all, it was also a little depressing because I discovered how much room I had to grow in it, even though they said I rated pretty well. I had a long way to go to be considered uh, to what I would consider happy. Now, there's five practices we, can, we have to cultivate happiness. Remember I said it's a learned skill. Here's how you learn to be happy. And these practices can be done in less than two minutes a day. You don't even have to do all of them to see the difference. Uh, they've seen people overcome a genetic and environmental disposition to achieve happiness by doing these five things. Even 84-year-old men who had been generally pessimists their entire life had changed their outlook on the world by these practices. And the first one is thankfulness and gratitude. The Bible has tons to say about thankfulness and gratitude. Enter his courts with thanksgiving. It's a worship to God when we are thankful and it's also healthy to our souls. You write down three things to show your gratitude from each day is how they do this practice. In Acre Studies, he found that doing this for 21 days, people's brains began to retain a pattern of scanning the world for positive first rather than negative. They trained themselves in 21 days to be looking everywhere they go for positive things and positive outcomes, and it made them much happier. Number two is journaling. Not anything deep, diary, but just bulleted points of one of those points of gratitude, like of how, you know, the, what happened and in that uh, scenario and how it made you feel because it, it causes your brain to recall these moments and relive it and it reinforces that constant pattern. They took some uh, uh, patients that are suffering from MS and they had them do this for six weeks, actually. This is one of the early studies. They did it for six weeks, this practice of journaling. And then they found in a period of six months that the MS patients who did that had their pain medication cut in half because A joyful heart is good like medicine. They cut their pain medicine in half just from doing that one practice. Number three is exercise. Did I say number two? Number three is exercise. Doing 15 minutes of mindful cardio activity like gardening, walking the dog, or going for a walk was found to have an equivalent effect of taking an antidepressant. Some water here. 15 minutes of gardening or Xanax. <laughs> you know, you weigh, you know, weigh that out. Gardening. I was really surprised. I was like, really? That's, that, that's cardio. I guess it is. But according to ACOR, doing this for the next two years, you have a 30% less likelihood of getting depressed again. And the reason is, is that exercise trains your brain to believe that your behavior matters. And when that happens, you start creating an entire constellation of positive habits in your life, which buffers the depression and negativity we experience. Trains your brain to believe that our behavior matters. And so it starts a whole ball rolling. Number four is to meditate and be mindful. This doesn't have to be spooky. I know it has a lot of things attached to it. But Psalm 4610 says, be still. And know that I am God. How they did this at Google was they asked people to 
take their hands from their keyboard, don't even leave, leave their desk or anything, just have to take your hands off your keyboard, sit, and they paid attention to their breath only for two minutes. Then they went back to work. They found increased productivity, increased creativity, and increased happiness in these people. So you could just take two minutes and focus on one of the aspects of God. Or you could just simply repeat the name of Jesus over and over while you breathe. Just focus on God. Be still. Number five. Perform acts of kindness and build social connection. In Genesis, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper, a companion. Verse 23, the man said, finally, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's from the message, so it's a little little happier than some of the other ones. But bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the purpose of that whole thing there is to indicate how we were made. We were made for this connection and this connection. We were made that both would be important to us. Social connections are the greatest predictor of long-term happiness and productivity. They may also combat obesity, high blood pressure, and smoking. Aker suggests a simple practice for this by sending a positive email to a coworker or somebody you know uh, one, one day, each day for three weeks. It'll build your social network and it'll strengthen your connections. They're also showing this to work in, in addicts. They put addicts in communities and they, they, they help them develop their social, social skills and their relationships and they find out that addiction goes away. So addiction is is uh, connected to loneliness. And we all know, probably most of us know, that you can be lonely in a crowded room full of people or in a house full of people you live in. You can still be lonely. So that's powerful stuff. But guess what? I have a great suggestion we have coming up, our new small groups. Get into a small group. It's an amazing way to strengthen your social connections. The Daring Face small groups are coming up. You, you meet new people. You get, you don't just, it's, it goes beyond new sports and weather with people. You develop true connections where people are hearing your heart. You're hearing others' hearts. And people are weeping with you and laughing with you. And it strengthens you. And it's a way to create a happier life. There's a story that he tells about farmers in Zimbabwe. And these farmers had their land stolen from them by the government. The, land, the government, crooked government, just took, took the land and inadvertently created this economic collapse. So here these farmers are, their land's taken from them. They're using wheelbarrows to push their money around because the currency has collapsed. And they studied them, and they thought, okay, for sure. And this is around time of the whole the, uh, international collapse in 2008. They said, surely, okay, we're going to find here these people are going to be struggling and going to be depressed. Well, what they discovered was that these people were not depressed, and they were happy. And they were like, what in the world? We just came from Swiss bankers who didn't get their bonus for one year and are depressed. And now we're here, these poor people that don't have anything using wheelbarrows to move their money around, and they have an optimistic 
outlook on the future, and they are happy. And they discovered the key to that whole thing was their social connections. There were groups of people that were tightly connected to one another, and that made all the difference in that for them. So I just want to encourage you to stay with the process of being transformed into his image and encourage you to jump into becoming purposefully happy, that that would be a medicine to us, to the people around us, and to the neighborhood and the city around us. We're very focused here at Seacoast on touching people outside of the church. And the more joyful, optimistic, and happy we are, the more we can let that overflow onto others. And we can have a huge impact on their lives and on this city. So I just want to pray for you really quickly. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.